With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The shark baby has such teeth there, and it shows them pearly away. So welcome everybody to this latest episode of Macklin Steak with me, Andy Clark, and Matt Macklin. Hope everybody's well. Hope you enjoyed the podcast last week with Carl Frotch. We definitely did. Frotch is right up our street. Uh, We always enjoy getting him on because he's just got this mixture of, I don't know, I'd probably describe it as, as... well, I mean, it's definitely knowledge, but with a good sprinkling of total nonsense, which just suits us down to the ground. That is us all over. He's not everybody's cup of tea, the Cobra, but he's definitely ours. So if you haven't listened to that, do 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 go back and, and have a listen and, and have a look at, at the YouTube channel as well, because we pulled a few clips out there of uh, of Cole talking about various things, which, um, yeah, definitely seem to arouse some some debate, shall we say. So on to today's episode, and we are sticking in the same part of the world. We are moving seamlessly from one sheriff of Nottingham to the other, from one legend of Nottinghamshire to the other, because today's guest is someone who's been steeped in boxing for the same amount of time, really. Um, Amateur and pro, he had a good career, and he is now, I'm going to say, a board licensed, you can correct me in a minute, a board licensed promoter, manager, trainer, and matchmaker up there with Steffi Bull and John Pegg as the probably most licensed people uh, in British boxing. And we've seen him quite a lot recently because we see him a lot anyway, but we've seen him quite a lot recently because he operates at all levels of the sport. Um, so we saw him leading the corner uh, for his fight to David Avenition against Josh Kelly at the SSE Arena a couple of months ago. And what was a big fight, big night, much anticipated fight. Uh, and we saw him injured Bolter as well, where he was kind of, guesting in the corner uh, to an extent, but revisiting an old stomping ground where he headlined a show when he was a pro. And uh, he was actually staying on the same yacht, the Sunborn, I think it's called, that he that he got married on. Uh, I saw him I saw him tweeting. He's firmly ensconced in what is an unbelievably impressive man cave, massive TV, boxing memorabilia, and a bar uh, behind him is Carl Greaves. 
Carl, this has been a long time coming. We've been meaning to get you on for ages. Um, yeah, you've had a hell of you've, you've had a, you've had a right couple of months to be honest. Yeah, I've been very busy. Uh, been in the limelight, which has been nice. But um, yeah, enjoying it, doing well. So let's actually let, let's kind of just go back to the start a bit because we we always enjoy hearing about people uh, about how people got into the sport. So you started boxing pretty young, I think, about about ten, um, about ten or eleven. Um, how did w- why boxing? What happened? Yeah, I first went to the boxing club at nine years old. I can remember being in the local working men's club where my me, uh, parents used to take me at the weekends. And I can remember seeing Barry McGuigan in the back room winning the world title, 1985 it was. And I just got mesmerised by it. And I was a big fan of the Rocky films. And yeah, I just said to my stepfather, I said, I'd love to get involved in boxing. Um, and he actually knew the local amateur coach, Dick Daubney. So he rang Dick and Dick said, look, he's not, he's not old enough, but let him come down, see what, he, see what he thinks. I went down, I had a great time, did really well. And then he says, come back when you're 11, because this is when we take you in. Went back when I was 11 and uh, never looked back, really. Um, been in boxing ever since. So we, we often say, me, me and Matt, and, um, you know, he lived it, I didn't, but... Uh amateur days and, and you, I think you you got selected for for young England so you, you got to a, you got to a good standard amateur days are those kind of simpler times where you're just doing it for the for the love of it and you stayed in boxing for the for the love of it it's your living as well obviously but now that you're embroiled in the business side of it in pro fighting and have been for a really long time uh people who've ended up going down that route they look back at the amateur times and just think wow like i didn't i didn't really understand just how just how good that was where i was just i was just thinking about fighting and that was it yeah i mean obviously you don't really know how, how far you're going to go with it but it's something i've always wanted to do i mean since a young boy i've never really given up i've had my ups and downs i've had my knocks I've never really had anyone behind me supporting me. I've done it all myself off my own back. I never had parents coming to watch me. I always remember used to go into the shows and they always had the parents here. But my parents was never really that interested. They just let me crack on and did it all my way, really. Um, yeah, and just kept kept plugging away. Had me ups and downs and got to like 15, 16. It started getting really serious then. Uh, got to a national junior ABA final. Got to a couple of uh, NABC national semi-finals, got picked for Young England, and there was hardly getting beat then. And it got to the stage where, at 19 years old, I kept going in the ABAs, and I was meeting a kid called Craig Spacey, who was a very good amateur at the time. He'd won a junior gold medal at the Europeans. I kept getting beat by him in the middle and finals. So it was either turn pro or, or pack up. So I had a meeting with John Ashton at 19 years old and, and decided to turn professional. And um, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a great career. And Matt, we, like I say, we see, we see Carl around all the time and, and we see his fighters here, there and, and everywhere. And we, we spoke to Steffi uh, about this time last year, Steffi Ball. We know John Pegg, obviously uh, we know him, we know him well. And, What's interesting about speaking to to, to all of them, um, and it's definitely true of Carl, is that you look at what he's gone on to do outside the ring, 
And you can just see from hearing him talk about his career, just briefly there, we'll get more into the pro career, but you can see how he's made such a success of it because the fighters that he's looking after, he knows what it's like to to turn pro without any real backing. He knows what it's like to have to do the graft and and, and forge your own path. Uh, he knows it all. Yeah, I mean, listen, people read boxing news and ring magazine or watch sky and whatever else and they think that boxing's a certain way but you know that's a certain way when you're you you you've, you've got a massive promotional outfit behind you they don't, they don't know what goes on at the lower levels let me tell you it's an absolute grind it wasn't a grind for me because i was i was one of those people i was aba champion 18 big amateur pedigree you know got a big deal turning pro and and and, and it set me up and i carried it on but I came, I boxed a small league down with a boxing club. We did a podcast a few, a while back with the likes of Paul and Mark Ramsey and Anthony Maynard and these guys. But so I, I came through knowing the reality. I knew how hard it was. Luckily for me, like I say, I, I, you know, I had and some momentum, pedigree and, and it turned over. But oh, the, 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 the reality of pro boxing away from being signed to a big time promoter, it, it, it's hard work, man. And it's people like Carl, John Pegg, Steffi Ball, you're Steve Woods of the world as well. If it weren't for these people grinding day in, day out, and it's a 24-7 business, let me tell you, and no nine to five, because that phone could go at two o'clock in the morning. You know, you, you mentioned that he even does a bit of matchmaking. Who the fuck would want to be a matchmaker? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, literally these people are the, are the lifeblood of British boxing, aren't they? Listen, well, boxing around the world, but you know we're concentrating in the UK, aren't we? At the minute, and these people—if it weren't for the likes of your Carl Breezes, your John Pegg, Steffi Ball, it, boxing wouldn't—you know—you could be you could be Eddie Hearn, you'd be Frank Warren. If you didn't have these people grinding, it wouldn't happen. You couldn't couldn't continue. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, like we, we we talked off air before we come on. Off air before we recorded, and he mentioned about bringing a kid up sparring. And I remember it when he said it then. Well, even that coming up on a Tuesday night up to Manchester, bringing a kid up to spar, you know, it, you know what I mean? There ain't no glory in that, let me tell you. So it's, uh, but it, it's, if, if these things didn't happen, the wheels would stop turning. Hey, 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 ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody, sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called the Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! We'll get into the we'll get into the where boxing is at the minute um, because crowds aren't that far away from coming back and 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 the small hall scene in that regard in, in just a bit. But let's have a let's have a bit of a chat about that pro career because it was a good career. And when I was looking back at it today, I was looking back through your record. the 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 first fight that just just jumped out at me straight away was a fight you had with Steffi Steffi Ball, six rounds. 1997, you lost by half a point. I imagine you still dispute it. Macklin still bitterly disputes his points defeat against <laughs> Andrew Facey. Um, don't get him started. Uh, but it's just amazing to think that the two of you, like you see, your careers and, and 
I mean, boxing lives are running kind of real parallel parallel lines. I mean, so what what did go down that night then? Half a point to Steffi yeah, Ball at the, I mean, the Doncaster Dome. Uh, for my memory, it was either tall, long southpaw. I mean, I'm a left-handed orthodox fighter, so my left foot was always my great punch, my best punch. But from what I can remember, the first three rounds, it was a bit awkward for me, a bit long. Uh, probably outboxed me, um, tied me up inside, did what he had to do. And then the last three rounds, I was on the front foot pushing him back and I thought I won the last three. So it was a stone-cold draw. I think Steph Fee will agree with that. He got the hometown uh, verdict, uh, the Doncaster Dome verdict by half a point. So, um, yeah, it is what it is. I mean, it's, 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 it's amazing, really, because I actually went on to manage Steffi at the end of his career. Um, Started promoting shows at the Doncaster Dome for him and obviously all his fighters it was involved with. And then obviously when he retired from boxing and got his own licence and that, he, he took Doncaster Dome back off me. So it was, it was, it was we've got a great friendship, me and Steffi, good relationship. We always reminisce about the old days and uh, we've been through a lot together. But yeah, the fight was definitely a stone cold draw. Definitely. Oh, you boxed Alex Arthur, didn't you, up in Newcastle, 2002? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a big night. Go, Gomez, Alex Arthur, Cole Johansson. Yeah. They were... I, I, I won... Uh, I lost three in my last 27 to Gomez, Arthur and Johansson, uh, two for the British, and obviously I lost my WBF title to, to Cole Johansson at Wembley Arena. So, um, yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean... Good to say, been in the ring with that sort of level of opposition. I mean, obviously, I was always the the away fighter, so um, in them sort of level. So it was it was good, good experience, and nice to look back on. But I suppose where you are now, understanding what it's like to be the opponent at that level and different things to be on TV shows to not be on TV shows because you know they're worlds apart, aren't they, in terms of the finances, etc. That's probably that's probably been absolute paramount for you, really, in yeah. forging the career that you have done. Post your own boxing career. Yeah, experience I've gained, obviously, from being being obviously the away fighter so, as such. I mean, it, obviously in my career. I mean, I was an home kid most of the time because I used to be a big ticket seller, but all my big fights was mainly away from home. And obviously, I took a few away jobs because I won my first six. And then lost, lost four of my next six. He had a bad run. Obviously, Steffi was involved in that patch. And then I went on to win 12 on a trot. Box Gomez for the British. And uh, obviously, this is where you know from sparring and fighting, it's completely different, different kettle of fish. Because I went over to spar with Gomez. I'll never forget. A couple of weeks before, he we were, we were fighting for the British title against Gary Fornell. And I fought more than old my own. Yeah, boxing for the British and is the only person ever to knock me out. You know what I mean? So it's just crazy how different from sparring and fighting actually is. And when you hear about, oh, I did one in sparring, he stood him on his head. You don't mean nothing, Matt. You know that because sparring and fighting is completely different. So, yeah. And then a woman next four. And then I got a shot at uh, Alex Arthur, which is a big occasion. Chief support to Ricky Atten and uh, Joe Kalzake at the Tele West Arena in front of a sold out. I think it was 12,000 there, rammed in there on Sky TV. And at the time, Alex Arthur was 14 and 0 with 12 knockouts, the rising star of British boxing. Went in there, did really well with him. 
took him to the six rounds. We never offered him a fee. And it was a bit premature, the stoppage. But, I mean, it was probably only going to go one way. I was in the fight up to round four. But, yeah, so it's been a, it's been a, been a good career. And did you go straight sort of into managing, training, matchmaking? Yeah. Straight after well, your own career? It's funny, really, because obviously I'll go back to... I failed a, a routine brain scan in 2001. I mean, you know how strict the scans are, the MRI, MRA. And I had a slight change in it in 2001. It was the same time when Wayne, there was 14 boxers, actually. It was a new medical officer, and he took licence off 14 fighters who had a query with a scan. It was the same time of uh, it was Wayne McCullough when he failed his. I think Dale Robinson was one, another quite good name back in the day. And um, I, was off the, I was suspended for 10 months, and in that 10 months... I didn't know whether I was going to get my license back. So I went and applied for my trainer's license. So I've actually had my professional trainer's license 20 years. Um, I'm 44 now. I've got my trainer's license at 24. And uh, I started training a few local fighters, Stevie Williams, a boxing jockey, Tony Darling. I had Matt Scriven, Ivan Bottom. I had a good little stable. But then I got my license back, and that's when I had all my, all my big fights. Uh, obviously, um, Johansson. Uh, off uh, box Ben Oda match for the WBF world title won that so and then I got my license back and but I've always renewed it so I think I'm one of the only person in the country that's never actually been on this trainers course that they do now the new trainers course because I've never let it lapse I pay my license free my trainers license free every year so I've had it I've had it a long time you know what I mean it's been uh, been a good experience having it really because I've seen a lot of things as well so basically you're fucked if you ever need to give first aid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good, mate. Good, good career, good times. So how, how do you kind of, how, you mentioned you, you trained a couple of local fighters. How did it all kind of then build? Because how long after that was it, how long after stopping boxing did you think to yourself, okay, I could do this, full-time this could be my full-time job and and then maybe you start to think about being a manager and then a promoter I mean yeah. how does the how does the whole thing gather gather pace gather steam yeah well what, what happened was um I had another after me after my big fight so we're down to fight um Stephen Chinnock for a British title eliminator a middle area title and British uh, super featherweight title eliminator I should never have stuck at Super Featherweight. I'd well outgrown the weight. I mean, that's when I lost to Johansson. I won the WBF title in 2003. Uh, I never defended it for a year. Then I boxed Johansson. I'd well outgrown the weight. I should have moved up, to be honest. Um, it was absolute murder making, making Super Featherweight. I remember being £9 over the morning of the weigh and when I boxed Johansson. It was ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Scary stuff, to be honest, looking back. And, uh, I mean, obviously, I've learned so much. Obviously, we're making weight myself and and what you go through. So, I mean, you've got to do it right. It's all experience now as a trainer. Uh, and then I got a, a, a shot, a chance to fight. I stayed at the weight, never had done. And I had another change in the scan in 2005. I can remember being laid on the, um, on the set. He had been for a run. It was Valentine's Day 2005. I'll never forget. And Robert Smith rang me and said, uh, got some bad news, Carl. I said, what's that, Robert? I expected the worst. He said, you've had another change in your scan. 
And I was like, oh, you're joking, mate. He says, no. He said, unfortunately, Carl, you're not be fighting, not be fighting in a few weeks' time. He said, um, it's been quite a significant change as well. We can't really put a finger on it, what is what is wrong. He said, there's something about the caving in the left-hand side. It, it sort of like got a little bit bigger, but I've never had headaches, never had memory loss, always been sharp as a razor, I think. And it's crazy to think that I failed a scan twice. So I sat and thought about it and um, I just thought, you know what, that's, that's me done now. I had a few tears, um, I had a couple of, uh, two little girls and I thought, nah, that's me done. Uh, so I retired, but obviously, like I said before, I had my trainer's licence already, I kept that up. Within about a week or two, I went looking for premises, um, got myself a gym, um, started training fighters. Uh, word got around and me and the old intention really was just to train a few local fighters from around Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire um, got my manager's licence in 2006 and then the word got around and the phone was ringing and I've heard you managing fighters and, and all that and it just just snowballed really it was crazy and um, I, but all I ever wanted to do was just train a few local fighters put a few local shows on build a few kids up and go down that road, road. and um, then I got promoter's license in 2007, started promoting local shows, and then I was getting a lot of kids that was trying to sell tickets, struggling, saying, oh, I'm struggling to sell tickets, and I want to I wanna go on the road, and I gave them a chance, but I was never really their trainer, and but I always used to do the corners, you know what I mean, for away fighters and that, so I sort of like got tarnished with the... With the the, the, the sort of like picture that I was a, a journeyman sort of like trainer and manager and that, but that were never the case because I was a promoter building kids up every few months while putting shows on and building kids up. But I was always seen in the corner with away kids. Now you know what I mean? I've been in some... Yeah. So everybody was like thinking like calls a new knobby knobs, but it was never the case. I was never the trainer. You never used to train the journeyman. They used to just do their own thing, ring me up, Carl. He says, we you doing the corner tonight? So I had some of the best times in my life going up and down the country, learned so much. I had about, I had a good probably, I don't know, six, seven years, you know what I mean? Uh, going around the country on some big shows, learning so much. And uh, But I'd always had, I always had my good prospects that I was building up as well, you know what I mean? And putting the odd purse bid in, winning winning bids for English titles and that. And, I mean, I've had every champion across the board from area level through to world as a trainer, manager or promoter. And this is someone that started with nothing. I come into boxing. I mean, I never earned a lot of money in my career. I've done every job going from making pine furniture to uh, dealing in waste, cooking oil, done labouring, I've done market trading, I've done everything. But boxing was what I always wanted to do. And I started, like, doing after-dinner speaking, bringing big names to my town, and, like, Ricky Atten, Frank, you know, Nigel, Ben Collins, McGuigan, who I started with my first ever show. I did Roy Jones, Barrera, and there was fantastic nights. And I learned a bit that way, putting shows together. Built a few quid up, earned quite good money doing that. And then I went into the promoting, got my £10,000 bond, put it into the board and 
done 147 shows since 2007, and obviously I've had 18 months out with the pandemic, so it's been a remarkable journey, really. And this is someone who's done it all off my own back, no backers, you know what I mean? It's just it's just been crazy. It's, it's Andy, we do, you've said a few times on shows we've, we've done recently even, you said you, there's been some opponents that have come in to box a matchroom fighter, let's say, and you said this kid's one of them, he's... He he he, uh, he gets his wins. He builds up his wins. He builds up his record on non-TV shows. Obviously, a ticket seller from where he's from. But then, when he gets, you know, when he usually when he boxes on the TV side, he's in the away corner as the opponent, and he, that, that's where his losses have generally come from. Yeah. Would you say you were you were in that kind of bracket, Carl? As a fighter, yeah, that was me as a fighter. I mean, like I said, I mean, I took a couple of away fights early on in my career because. I was 6-0, I got beat, got beat on the seventh fight. The ticket sales started dipping a bit. And John Ashton said to me, look, do you want to have a few fights on the road? And I can remember him offering me JT Kelly. I don't know if you can ever remember him from Sunderland. He was, he'd won 25, lost 25. He offered me a 24 hours notice. He said, I've seen this kid box before. He said, I know you can beat him. Do you want the fight? So I didn't really know what an away fight I was. I said, yeah, no problem. Went down there and I beat him. You know what I mean? And that was the start of like the run where I went unbeaten for a while. But before that, I can remember boxing Irving Blake for the Midland area title. I'd gone from six twos level. I'd never done a three-minute round. And on the 12th fight, I fought Irving Blake on a Pat Cardell dinner show at the Holiday Inn on the 12th fight for the Midland area six featherweight title. Another fight where I fought I'd won and got beat by the old half a point. I absolutely boxed his head off for the first six rounds. He come back into it because a rough, tough, strong man Irving was. He was, I was 21 year old, he was about 32, he was a strong kid, you know what I mean? But I still won the fight, I thought, but they gave him it by the old half a point. But looking back now, that was a blessing for me because if I'd have gone and won the Midland title on my 12th fight, I'd have been putting a bit deep too soon, you know what I mean? I wouldn't have been quite ready for it. So, when I lost to him, I rebuilt it, won 12 on a trot. Um, went on a couple of Eurosport shows that John Ashton was doing with Barry Earn back in the day. And, uh, yeah, built up and learned quite a lot through that that way. And then, obviously, I got my crack at Gomez for the British. But all my, all my defeats, really, was as an away fighter, to be truthful, at the big, on the big shows. I said at the start that, that that you kind of operated at all levels and and as you describe it there in, in your own boxing career, but it's also true when, when it's come to, to handling fighters. You, you described how it all kind of happened. I mean, was was part of the reason, do you think, that in that part of the country at that particular time that just were there not people doing what you were doing or offering the service that you were offering, as in train, manage, promote? Was it Was it kind of, did you have a good catchment area? Was it one of those scenarios where... It was it was literally right time, right place for you. Yeah, I never really looked like I mean, but obviously, like I say, it probably was. I mean, I was the first person ever to get a trainer's license from Newark, manager's license from Newark, promoter's license. I think well, I still am the only promoter ever from, from Newark. Um but yeah, I mean, just, something that I always wanted to do. I mean, like I say, I never looked at it like that, just something I wanted to do. Boxing's me. I'm not from a boxing family. Nobody's ever boxed in my family. No one's ever been involved in boxing. But I feel like it was something I was born to do. You know what I mean? I've just... I mean, I've had my ups and downs, don't get me wrong, but I love the sport. I mean, I live and breathe the sport. 
uh, it's something that I just do 24-7, really. Like, I mean, being a, a manager, trainer, promoter, matchmaker, um, I've got no choice, but that's all I do, really. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. So what's it like trying to handle lots of different fighters careers when they're in when they're in different kind of brackets because lads who come to you who want to go on the road um you've got to be brutally honest with them and, and tell them whether you think they're good enough to do that tell them what that life is um and then if they buckle down to it you'll be able to you'll be able to get them work but you've got to kind of assess them and and, and make sure that they're they're not going to let you down basically when you give them a call and say i've got this fight at three days notice do you want it and they turn around and say no you know you have to I guess that's the key, isn't it? You have to explain to, to to them how this works. And it must be the same with with fighters who've got some real ambition. Everybody wants to sign with Matt Trim or Frank Warren. And and every fighter I've ever met thinks that that's realistic. But for but for some people it 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 isn't. And again, you might have to kind of put an arm around them almost and and say to them, listen, I know that's what you wanted. It hasn't happened, but this is what I can do for you. Yeah. I mean, boxing is changing, in my opinion. There's no proper journeyman about nowadays. Very few, to be fair. I mean, I can remember promoting, uh, managing Johnny Greaves, 100 fights he had, and I've had Ryan, Ryan Clark. I've had some good journeymen over the years. I've never, ever trained them, but I've managed them, and they've been good, tough kids, you know what I mean, who you know you could rely on that was going to go the distance 90% of the time. Um, nowadays, it's a little bit different. I mean, one thing that does strike me now is every journeyman has actually got a trainer, which is very surprising because I can remember the days when they never had a trainer and they used to ring me, Carl, can you come and do my corner? And like I said, there was some of the best days of my life. I learned a lot from, from helping these journeymen out. I've been in sticky situations. I've had to deal with bad cuts. I've had to deal with lads that's been under the cosh. And I think it served me well, you know what I mean? I've done my apprenticeship that way. and. I will never, ever forget them days. But now it's changed for me as well. I mean, I've got some good fighters coming through. Um, I've built some kids up along the way. And and and, and 90% of the time, all my success really on the big shows has come from, from the away fighters, you know what I mean? As, as the opponent, um, even some of the good wins I've had over the years, I've had some big, big wins on TV shows as an away, as an away manager trainer. So it has changed, but... You need to know the sort of fighter, fighter you're dealing with to have trust in him and know the capabilities, really. And you've just got to be careful not to put him in too deep because it can backfire on you. And um, you've got to know what you're doing, to be honest. Carl, how did you come across David Avenesian? Yeah. How did he end up in the work? <laughs> it's a funny story, really, because... Um, Neil Marsh started managing David. Um, he'd obviously heard about him, had a look at him. Um, we did a show me and Neil at Blackpool. And this was when I wasn't involved with David. Um, Neil said, would you like to do a joint show with me in Blackpool? Because me and Neil go back a long way. We go back to the days when 
meet when he was dead close with Oliver Harrison and we used to put joint shows on together, obviously myself, Oliver and Neil. Because um, I always got on well with Oliver and he was good friends with Neil and, and obviously that's how I got involved with Neil really. So, yeah, so he said, what do you think? So he, I went down there and put a show on and he said he'd brought Scott Olderson Russian and I think at the time he was doing a bit with Everton Red Triangle. Um, so he boxed, he beat Dean Byrne. He looked very good. And I have never had a clue that they were going to come to me and ask me if I want to train him. So basically, he, uh, he, he parted ways with Everton Red Triangle and uh, he took David around a few gyms training. And he said, would you like to have a, have a trial with him? And I said, to be honest with you, I mean, all the fighters I've really trained over the years, and this is probably why my name's never been out there as a trainer, has always really been part-time fighters, lads that's worked and trained. You know what I mean? I've never, ever had a fighter other than David that I've worked with full-time. I mean, they all used to work in the day and come to me at five o'clock at night and we used to do a session. But you know yourself, mate, you can't really teach a kid a lot when you're training a group of fighters. It's just like an amateur session, bag, pads, circuits. You're not really showing them nothing. And I've always been a very, very knowledgeable coach. You know what I mean? But it's always gone unnoticed because I've never had the chance to work with any elite fighters. So... He brought David to me. We had a session and he really enjoyed it and asked me if I'd want to be his trainer. So I agreed. I always knew it was going to be hard because training enough to fight a full time along the job that I'm doing as a matchmaker promoter and obviously training all the other kids as well was tough. But I was determined to make a go of it. And he moved to, he come to Newark, uh, I think it was eight weeks before his, his fight. And his first fight was for the WBA interim world title against. Charlie Navarro in Monte Carlo. So I took quite into the deep end. And, and uh, yeah, I spent a good eight weeks with him. Really enjoyed it. Was training him twice a day, probably five days a week, breaking, breaking me, my week up because I don't agree with these five days nonstop, two sessions a day. I think it's way too much. I think you need to be doing like three, three sessions on a, uh, three days on a trot, two sessions, and then having a day off in between. And, and breaking them up. So, yeah, we went over to Monte Carlo and, and we won the WB Entrance World title. So that was a story, really. We've been together over, what is it, getting on for six years now. We've been in some some big, big fights. Went on, had Shane Mosley, Peterson, Kavalowskis, the, the Kerman, the Giraga fights, obviously Kelly, and it's been unbelievable, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's an amazing story, that, because... Like Matt said, you know, how did David Avenetian, an Armenian, end up in, in Newark? Like, only in boxing do these things happen. But you, you've talked about how how things kind of went for you. Um, and it kind of seems like karma almost, that after all your hard work, from nowhere, this this kid appears in your gym um, from a completely different part of the world. And you yeah. get your opportunity to really spend some time with a good fighter. And look what look what you did. Because, I mean, that, that Sugar Shane Mosley... Sugar fucking shame, you know. It's, it's, <laughs> it was it's unbelievable, Andy. We, we, was, yeah, what was that like? It was unbelievable because Neil said, uh, I think you can get David the uh, Shane Mosley fight. I was like, you what? He said, honestly, he said, they went out to, uh, um, where was it? Panera, uh, Panama. Panama, Panama, yeah, I couldn't get the words out. <laughs> yeah, he went out to Panama. <laughs> Uh, and I, had a, I went to the WBA uh, um, convention. 
convention. He, yeah, that was it, the convention. And he met up with uh, with Mosley out there. And I think Mosley was coming off two wins and wanted to crack at the WBA title. But David was interim world champion. So I think Neil did brilliant to get that fight. You know what I mean? It was on a Shane Mosley show in Arizona. And the funny thing is, at the time, Mosley were training with Roberto Duran. So you've got young Carl Greaves in the corner from Newark. <laughs> and then looking across the ring, you've got... Sugar Shane Mosley, Roberto Duran, it was like <laughs> fairy tale stuff, you know what I mean? Unbelievable. And coming away with a victory as well, it was, it was, it was absolutely fantastic, mate. And a memory I'll never forget. And I can always remember Roberto Duran coming in the changing rooms and kicking off about something. I can always remember Neil telling him to get out and Dinoff giving me, get out. He said, no, mate, he won't bother who he was. He just put him in the place as legend as what um, Roberto Duran was. I mean, it was business at the end of the day, Matt, you know what I mean? So he just uh, he got him out of it. Yeah, unbelievable stuff and great to look back on. And we got some good memories, some good pictures. And having Shane Mosley on your record, I mean, it's fantastic. And listen, he was coming off two wins. And I can always remember David saying, he said he can half punch. He said, even at that age, he said he can half wallop. And they say that, the last thing a fighter loses is his punch, as you know yourself. And uh, he had to play it smart, but he did. He beat him quite comfortably, to be honest. Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know Neil Marsh, but uh, it, but it's uh, he doesn't mess about by by the look of things with, with anything. Yeah, he's, when he's it comes a straight to talker, mate. Listen, he wants what he wants what's best for his fighters. He's straight as a coming, and he'll say how it is. You know what I mean? Uh, with just just sticking with with um, that that story for a bit because it is it is really interesting. I mean, that fight against Kelly got made for for late two thousand and eighteen. Um, I was up in Sheffield. We both were. Me and Matt, and obviously we know what happened. It 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 disappeared the night before, morning of. Um, recriminations on kind of well aimed at aimed at their side more than anything else. Um, and I wasn't really sure if we would if we would see it after that. But what was really impressive was the way that 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 you and your team and 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 David responded because you went off to um, you went off to. Bill Bow to Spain to to fight Kerman Leharaga, who was like twenty seven and zero at the time, I think, or something like that, and he was yeah. banging out eleven, twelve thousand packed out indoor arenas, uh, and he was the next kind of European big thing, wasn't he? I mean, he, he was, you know, it's and yeah, anyone massive. who will follow it, following it at that point will remember. And those two stoppage wins to go there and stop him twice—that is, that is, that is proper kind of. You said you know you're into the Rocky films like we all are. That that's proper Rocky Balboa away day, classic shit, isn't it? Because you know those yeah. are those are huge wins. Those. 
unbelievable. I mean, Neil said to me, um, I think you can get David the Kerman and Jurago fight. And obviously, I'd seen Kerman blast out, obviously, Frankie Gavin, Bradley Ski, Denton Vissau. It was, a, it was a strong, heavy puncher. You know what I mean? And I can always remember when we got the fight, um, Alan Smith said to me, I mean, I don't think he thought David had much of a chance. You know what I mean? I remember him saying to me, he said, look, just be careful with that crowd. He said, it's very daunting. He said, you can lose a fight before you get in the ring with that crowd. But David's from a different kettle of fish. You know what I mean? He's from a different stock. I mean, nothing phases him. As you can see with his career, he's been all over the world. And most of the time is the away fight. I mean, well, they all have been away fights, really. Even Josh Kelly, he was in the, he was actually got put in the away corner in the end. You know what I mean? He was in the red corner, even though he was the champion. Um, but yeah, and we come out, and I tell you what, you've got to be a strong character to go to Bill Barr and Box Kerman in front of 12,000. Because they don't have barriers in it. I don't know if it's just in Bill Barr or what, but in, when we went, there was no barriers. You walk out, it was just like, little post with rope on, you know what I mean? And there was hovering over you and whistling. I just was tunnel visioned and walked through. And for David to do that to Kerman, and when he actually beat him, you could hear a pin drop in the audience, in the crowd. It was daunting. We had to stay in the ring until the end. But they're really warm to David, the Bilbao fans, you know what I mean? And he went out there and did it again. And it was a little bit more bitter there. I don't think I was expecting David to blast him out in a round. And... But they've all become good friends of good friends of David and good fans. He gets a lot of uh, messages of support from Bill and I for what he did to Kerman. And Matt, that the fight against Kelly, you know, we were we were we were skeptical at the time in, in late 2018 that it that it would resurface, but it did, and then it kept getting rescheduled. And you kept thinking, well, I did that maybe this is not going to happen for whatever reason, but then it did happen, and. Team Avenetian were was super confident. Team Kelly was super confident. We were both all over this one. We both absolutely loved it. And then we saw what happened. We saw what happened on the night. And you know, it was it was pretty one sided in the end. I remember doing the uh, preview show on the Sky YouTube channel, and uh, we we're building it up, doing the debate and that, and we were giving the pick. And it was like I remember, and I said, I remember saying. Oh, I'm picking Kelly, I said, but if I'm honest, I'm picking him on potential, on promise, on what I've been told and what I've heard from people whose opinion I value, by the way. And that's really what I'm picking it on because there's nothing so far on his record to suggest he's experienced enough or seasoned enough to beat a guy like David Avenesian. But a lot of people whose opinion I value are saying this, that and the other. So you know, on that, I'm picking Kelly, but he's going to have to be better than he's ever been by quite a stretch to, to get the win over Avenesian because this guy has got a very, you know, real career in the sense that no one's done this kid no favours. He, he's been, he's done it, he's done it the hard way. What what his record is, his real record, you know what I mean? He, he had, you know what we're talking about? We talk about people that's, you know, you used to see some of them old Philadelphia fighters and, and they ain't got the best of records, but actually they can fight like fuck. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> they've just been slung in. And having easy and I thought, it, no one's built him up. He's just been thrown in. and he, So his record is the real record. And I thought, you know, Kelly ain't really bucked someone like that. Ray Robinson in New York, he's draw. That was, yeah, he's a good fighter. But 
I don't know, this is a tough fight, but if, he, if he's as good as everyone's saying he is, then he should get the job done. So it was one of them, really. But as it played out in the fight, I mean, Kelly Sharp, a few rounds, everything. But Avanesian was just sticking it on him, keeping it on him. And it was like, when Kelly had finished his punches, he wants to go for a breather then. Do you know what I mean? He's, he's flashy in bursts. But Avanesian is that type of guy. He didn't let him have his rests. So... You know, he made it, when he had a burst, he made it have another one and another one and another one. And eventually, if you're not used to fighting like that, it's going to catch up with you. Yeah, it's funny, really, because everything I predicted that would happen in that fight happened. I mean, what you're saying there about don't let, him, don't let Kelly have a breather, that were my tactics, Matt. I had it absolutely perfect. What we worked on, what I planned in my head, how that was going to happen. I'd seen Kelly more, watched Kelly more than any other fighter I probably watched opponent-wise, in my life, because it had been on and off that many times. And his last three fights said it all for me, what I wanted to see. He looked brewing in bursts, and then he'd go away, try to get his breather, and he was fighting opposition that was letting him have a breather. You know what I mean? And I just said to David, look, watch this. Look what I'm saying. And we stood it and watched it, and I said, when he wants to breathe, don't let him breathe. And you can hear me in the corner... I mean, I'm not one of these flash coaches that come out with all these crazy words that you wouldn't have a clue what to say. Simple tactic. Don't let him breathe, David. Don't let him breathe. Get on him. And you picked up on it in commentary straight away. Carl Greaves, you can hear Carl Greaves shine, don't let him breathe. You know what I mean? You knew what the game plan was straight away. And it wasn't rocket science, but it worked to a T. And I just knew that Kelly would look great early doors, met David look bad at times but David would finally get to him. He got to him a bit sooner than he expected, but he broke him down bit by bit. And every time, even when he wasn't landing punches, it was making Kelly work harder than he wanted to work. You know what I mean? And everything I predicted, everything I said come true, it was unbelievable, really. <laughs> you know what I mean? But going back to, obviously, taxing that, I can remember being in the uh, in the room and I can remember it coming on... on uh, on my, on my YouTube thing, tactics, uh, Tony Bello and David Colwell, um, Sky Sports Premier at 6pm. I can remember going down and seeing Alan Levine and Neil in the thing. I said, oh, I'm going to watch this one. No, no, don't watch it. Don't watch it. He said, really? It's, no, no, don't watch it. He said, I, I, I wouldn't be interested in that. You know what you got to do. You know your tactics. And I never watched it. For about two weeks after the fight, I can remember watching it sat there and I thought, oh, I'll watch that, put it on. And honestly, they never gave David and Ali a chance at all. It was all, I mean, Tony Bello was like, it's going to be another Kowalowski's job. Uh, Adam Booth won't be taking this fight if he didn't think that Kelly had could beat him and all that. But I couldn't believe it, man. If I'd have watched that before the uh, before the fight, I may as well not have turned up. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> it would no one. It just never gave us a chance, mate. But I always knew that David had the beating of Kelly. That's why I uh, persist, persisted that the fight was going to happen. Uh, I wanted the fight to happen because it was going to be a great scope for David. That was. So. I was asked a few weeks ago on the Boxing News panel after after Conor Ben's win, which was impressive, real good win against Samuel Vargas. What would be what would be a good next fight for Conor Ben? And, and I think I was the only one of the four of us. I can't remember who the other three people were off the top of my head. Who said who said David Avanesian? It just it just seems really obvious to me. It's a European title. Who doesn't want to try and win a European title? And 
that was a really good win against Vargas. He's put himself at a certain level there, Connor Ben. I mean, and you'd want it, wouldn't you? I mean, has there been any communication about that at all? You know what? In every single interview that Connor's had, Eddie's had, Matt, anybody, Davy's name hasn't been mentioned once. Not once. It's crazy. And then the other night, um, I watched an interview with an IFL with, with Eddie and Connor, and I think Tony Bellew got involved as well. And, and basically, Eddie was saying that Connor's going to be fighting for the European title on, in June, on July the 31st. Yeah, still not mentioned the David's name. So they're hoping that we're going to vacate. But obviously, Neil's in negotiations. He's David's manager. But the only way we're going to vacate is if it's worth our while vacating and we're going to get a bigger offer, a bigger fight. You know what I mean? Because to me, it's not worth vacating unless we get a big opportunity. I mean, the European title is a good title to have. But he's adamant he's fighting for the European title, Connor, on July the 31st. That's what's been announced. That's what he said. If you look on a few, there's a few uh, interviews going around, a few websites and that. But we'll see what's going to, what's materialised. But they've not mentioned David and I just know they don't want to fight David. Listen, I'm not saying Connor don't want to fight David because Connor's a fighting man. He'll fight anybody. But I know Tony Smith. I'm very good friends with Tony. I've known, I've got back a long, long way with him. I've took fighters over to his gym for many times, David being one of them, sparring. And he knows David well, you know what I mean? He knows David well. And I just think that he knows that Connor's a couple of fights off someone like David. I know he had that good win against Vargas, but he jumped on him, you know what I mean, and caught him cold. And Vargas never really had a chance to, to respond and the referee jumped in. Listen, it was a right stoppage, don't get me wrong, but if it had weathered the storm, you don't know what would have happened, you know what I mean? He's still quite... He's not really had the experience at top championship level, Connor, and going in with someone like David could be another another Josh Kelly type fight, you know what I mean? And would Eddie want to risk, you know what I mean, going down that road, what he did with Kelly with Connor Ben, because he's expecting Connor to be the next pound for pound star, you know, a pay per view star, you know what I mean? So they're going to have to get it right with Connor. And I just think that although it's a great fight on paper, it looks a fantastic matchup. I just think that Eddie knows it's at one or two fights, and Tony, that it's one or two fights too soon for Connor. That's why they're hoping to vacate yeah. to give Connor the chance. Yeah, I was just going to say, Carl, personally, myself, and I'm a big Connor Ben fan, I, I'm quite vocal about that. I, I, I like the way he's, um, I love his attitude. I like, yeah. I, I, I mean, I like, I, like, I like watching him fight, it's exciting, and I've, I've been impressed with his improvement. But I don't think he needs a fight with David Avenesian just yet. He's progressing nicely. Listen, you're right about the Vargas fight. I think it was he, he should have been stopped. I think I don't think it was a premature stop. Maybe one or two punches premature, you could argue, but he was getting done. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. he, but he did. He caught him. He caught him quick, didn't he? And he got him out of there. I just think, you know, someone like Avenesian, who, who, like you say, he's been there with Shane Mosley. He, he's solid, and he? he's got a good. And even the yeah. Spanish guy he had the two fights with him was a banger. You know, so yeah. he's got good whiskers, he's got good defence, good know-how. You don't really need... I think Conor Ben needs more seasoning. He need, listen, the Vargas fight, if it had gone six or seven rounds, would have been good because he's an experienced guy and he might have answered, asked a few questions of Conor that hopefully Conor would have eventually answered. But the fact that he got him out of there so quick, he was kind of over before he really got a chance to... Now, while it was a statement and it was impressive, and it got us all, wow, the hype machine rolling. Yeah, even me, even me. 
But he didn't give him the he didn't give him the schooling or the experience that we was hoping he'd get from that fight. You know what I mean? No, that's it. It's almost like he needs another fight or two of that stature where, listen, you're not going to moan if you bang him out in a round, don't get me wrong, but ideally, he'd get the six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twelve rounds even under his belt because when you're going in with someone like Avenician at that level, you need that You need that schooling, you need that seasoning. Yeah, that's what I definitely. Do. Definitely. And they know that, Matt. They know that. They're not daft. They don't want it to be another Josh Kelly job. You know what I mean? If David goes and ruins Connor Ben now, then where are they going to go with Connor? You know what I mean? They need to get it right. I think they're expecting Connor to, he's a good name, and I mean, obviously, off the back of his dad as well. I mean, listen, he's he's gone past the, the Nigel Ben, the son of Nigel Ben. You know what I mean? But um, he, they don't want to spoil it with him. They need to get it right. And, uh, Get him a few more fights before they step him up with someone like David, in my opinion. It will be a great fight. It'll be a war if it did happen now, but David would David beat him, mate, pretty convincingly, I think. Okay, so we haven't got too much longer left, so we'll just um, we'll just switch topic and let's have a look at, at small hall boxing and, and what's in store for that over the coming months because there hasn't been any, obviously, during the course of the pandemic. It's, it's one of those... Um, events one of those areas that relies completely on ticket sales so it was just never ever viable for small horse show to continue under covid restrictions when you are able to do shows again how many small hall promoters are going to stick with it do you think are, you, are there going to be casualties i'm not sure about promoters but i do think we're going to lose a few fighters uh, I think a lot of fighters now have, have found other interests. Obviously, they've probably got new jobs and they've had that much time out now. Would they really want to go? Probably a lot of them probably put a lot of weight on. You know what I mean? Would they want to go through all that again and, and come back? I don't know. I mean, the younger generation, the up-and-coming kids, it's probably two or three and they will still be keen. But the ones at the back end of the, the career, it's probably, it's probably not I mean. The COVID's probably put jeopardised to them boxing again. But for me as a promoter, I've got more ambition than than ever. Um, the first show is booked for September the 11th at the Morningside Arena. Leicester, a TV venue, really. I mean, it's had a few big shows there, old 3,000. Fantastic itself. It would be my biggest show to date, to be honest, if it comes off. But all I'm waiting for is the testing to stop. As soon as the testing stops and the hotel bubble and the food and whatever you've got to pay for then I'm ready to go because even with a full crowd, a sold-out arena, having to pay for COVID testing and an hotel and food for three nights, it's just not feasible. I mean, me and Steve would work it out, and I think he worked it out. It was £18,000 just for the testing, the hotel and the food for the three days bubble. And it's tough enough making money as a promoter as it is with a full ass, you know what I mean? With no TV revenue little bit of sponsorship, just relying on ticket sales only. So it's a tough, tough job. So as soon as that testing stops, I'm ready to go. The venue is aware of that. I've got my deposit down and they know the situation. So I'm hoping once everybody's had the vaccination, that really the boxing board of control should be stopping the testing and we can, and we can get on with it because, uh, I don't know about how much capacity will be allowed by then. The venue seem to think it won't be full capacity still. 
But even having a couple of thousand in there, I'll probably put a 10 fight show on. At the minute, I've got 15 names. I mean, I'm stacked with local talent in East Midlands. Got some good fighters. I think out of them 15, every one of them's unbeaten. And they're and 9% of them are big sellers. So I'm pretty confident I could fill that, that venue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to be more ambitious than ever. I'm going to probably cut down on the number of shows I do, but probably do bigger ones now. Because, I mean, obviously, if it's if you're only allowed a certain percentage of crowd in, then I need a big venue anyway. And if we can have the full capacity, then the more the, more the better. Matt, do you think that's something that will happen kind of across the board, that um, all promoters at all levels, all, we, we've seen how TV has kept going and, and matching with Sky and BT and Frank Warren uh, and Mick Hennessy and Channel 5 have done, have done a great job with that. But do you think across the board that people will now be thinking not as many shows, but bigger, that that's the way we're kind of looking? Yeah, I mean, listen, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you're gonna have to, they're going to have to do the maths, aren't they? But as Carl says there, if you're, if you're putting on a show and you ain't got no TV, if you ain't got no TV, it's harder to get as much money from the sponsors. So, it's a, you know, it's going to be difficult, really. Like, it's, I, 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 look, listen, I know a little bit about the small hall show because, you know, my brother's on a few shows. Um, it's difficult. It's hard to make money. You know, you get your lads out and they all get a win and you get a bit of a manager's fee, so maybe you make a bit that way or you break even, but you, you believe in where it's going and you're keeping everything moving. But it's it's hard to make money on the small oil circuit. So if you're throwing in, you know, the costing of testing and and and, and staying overnight, you've got to go into a bubble and that. It, it's, I'd say it's borderline impossible because it's it's one thing breaking. It, you know, if you're if you're if you're someone like Carl Greaves or a John Peg and you're breaking even on a show, but you're getting the lads out and they get a win and it's working, it's moving and it's keeping everything moving. You might you might take that on the chin. But you don't want to be losing 10 grand, do you, to, for the sake of doing it either? So it's like, I don't know. Are they, going to, are they going to do less shows, but bigger shows? Maybe. But then, you know, the board, I think, you know, after a certain amount of fights, they charge more because there's got to be more officials. Yeah, that's the trouble. Yeah. That's the trouble. I mean, one of my success stories really is, is probably Sam Bowen. I mean, I took him all the way to British champion without TV. I mean, it's unheard of, really. You know what I mean? I couldn't get him I couldn't get him in with a TV promoter. I don't understand why, because he was a very, very good fighter. He was he had hundred and is that the kid from um, is that the kid from Ibstock? Yeah, yeah. You've commentated on him before, yeah. Mm. He boxed on a Sky Sports show and matchroom show where early on in his career, I think he blasted that Ronaldo Moore in a couple of rounds with a body shot. But yeah, so that's a good success story. I mean, taking someone like him, investing a lot of money, albeit I did have a good sponsor behind him with him, Jordan Road Servicing, backed him, um, invested, we invested a lot of money in him, got him to British Super Featherweight Champion on a non-TV show. He beat Maxi Hughes for the title on my show at Leicester, uh, King Power Stadium in the conference room there. And, and then that's when I got him a deal with Frank Warren, but... It was a it was a big investment, you know what I mean? We took a lot of money into him to get him to British champion. Fifteen, I mean, he won the British title, I think, on his 12th fight on a non all through all through non-TV shows, apart from that one on on Sky Sports, which I was absolutely amazed when Eddie didn't follow up on it with him. I mean, he should have took him on there, but he just didn't see him interested for some reason. But yeah, we uh we got him with Frank Warren and uh, he had some big fights and lost his title to Kikache. 
Uh, like he's pretty strong to catch it, but he's moving up to lightweight when he comes back. But that was a big success story, really. I mean, I'm really proud of that, bringing a British champion through on non-TV. I mean, it was great. It must, it must be a bit, a bit of a head scratcher when you've got someone like that, and and we've seen other examples of it from time to time where you just can't think of any reason why a major promoter wouldn't sign them. They they seem to tick every they seem to tick every box yeah. really. I mean that must be one of the most frustrating situations you can be in. I've had a few kids like that. I mean obviously John Wayne Ibbots another success story. I mean he contacted me, was put onto me to manage him. He got beat in the prize fire I think um, years ago now. And uh it was probably on the verge of packing up Kev Lilly who was a good friend of John Wayne Ibbots asked Asked me if I'd be interested in managing him. I took him on. Never had a clue what ticket salary was or anything. And his first fight with me was an away fire on Steffi Bull Show at Doncaster Dome against Tommy Coward for a British British Masters title. And he goes and beats Tommy Coward. I took a punch and started promoting him down in Essex. And he was a massive seller, bringing in big numbers, was filling out the great civic call every time. And... Um, I got a mandatory challenger for the uh, for the English title. And at the time, Eddie wanted to, I think it was Ricky Boyle and Tyler Goodwin wanted to put that fight on because he knew it was a big seller and an undercard of AJ at the O2. And uh, I was obviously John Wayne was jeopardising that because when he put in for it, Robert Smith said to Eddie, he said, unfortunately, John Wayne, if it's mandatory. So Eddie ran me and said, can we do something about this? So we went out of a meeting with Eddie. He said, look, step aside, let me have, let them too far, and I'll put John Wayne on the undercard. I said, you do know John's a massive salary, he'll probably do 60, 70 grand worth of tickets. He went, really? I went, yeah. So he said, right, don't let me down, then I'll give him a chance. He put him in for WBC uh, international welterweight title. He goes and flattened some Argentinian. Uh, so massive tickets, and that's how I got him in with matchroom. It's it's crazy how it works, really. But through the history of everybody, every champion I've had, I've had to start from scratch with them on non-TV shows. I think I've had, like I said, I've had a champion every category from area to world. Even David Avenison, and I'm only his trainer, but he's been the away fighter 90% of his career, even back in Russia on the early days. It's remarkable, really. But I've had area champions, English champions, Commonwealth, international European, world, all through, all started on small, all shows. Fantastic. That's amazing. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Um, I've just got one more question then before we, before we have to wind this up. And this, this, this relates to the, um, just to the current kind of state of, of, of the sport that we discussed small halls and hopefully they'll be back. They'll be back soon and full steam ahead with regard to, the TV shows, uh, and they're not the be-all and end-all, we know that, but the ones that we've been working on the last eight, nine months, all, all three of us, do you think there's a chance that they might change back to how they were before? What I mean by that is that, obviously, during COVID, selling tickets didn't matter. Um, and massive ticket sellers, for that reason, which is obviously normally very attractive to promoters, that didn't matter. What did matter was competitive fights. What did matter was finding people who would step up, often at short notice, take a 50-50 uh, and be able to compete at a really good 
level. Uh, it was fighters like that who the system had previously discarded in a lot of ways who got the opportunities. And that's been brilliant. But when crowds come back, will that keep going? Or will it just be all about ticket sales again? Or is there some kind of balance to be struck? Matt, you first. You know what? Yeah, you know what? It's been fantastic, some of the fights we've had, um, obviously, with, with the circumstances. And obviously, some of these kids being forced to step up sooner rather than later. But it's been great. I mean, I'm hoping we can keep it going. I'm hoping we can keep competitive fights going. You've got to realise, though, that when you've got a big ticket seller and you're building him up, you know what I mean? It's financial suicide getting him beat early because... You need these ticket sellers on these small old shows. You need them to make your shows work because if you're putting top of the bills on, it's costing a few quid like English title fights and, and probably, you know what I mean, area title fights. You know what I mean? You, you need big sellers on the undercard to make it work. And if you're tucking these kids in too soon, you've got to remember all these kids that's on these undercards on, on small TV shows, none of them's amateur superstars. You know what I mean? So... But some of them are very, very good fighters. It's gone unnoticed. And you know as well as I do that not all great amateurs make good pros. And not all, you know what I mean? And, and it, it can be vice versa, really. Some of these amateurs that wasn't that great turn out to be fantastic pros because it's not just about the skill level. It's about the art and the desire, the will to win in the professional boxing game. It's, you know what I mean? I mean, look at the skill set of Josh Kelly compared to David Avenician. It was a, a one-horse race in that aspect. But I just knew that David's got something a little bit different to other fighters. You know what I mean? He might not have the skill set. If you went and watched Josh Kelly in the gym, training on a, on the pads, on a speedball, on all that, it'd make David look ordinary. You know what I mean? But he don't work like that. So you've got to get it right with these fighters on these small old shows and you can't be chucking them in too deep. You've got to build them up properly and, and know when the right time is to, to let them go. Matt, what do you think? Do you think that we that we will see that these 50-50 fights we've kind of got used to on TV shows and really enjoyed between between fighters who often who previously wouldn't have got a look in because they didn't sell tickets? Do you think we'll still see them or or will it be like 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 Carl says? Because even for the big promoters, you still want people who can shift tickets. You still want that. Oh, absolutely. What I think will happen is what I could see happening. Well, I think will work. Where where we're used to sort of seeing five fights on the t on the telecast on the TV end, I can see that going down to two or three fights, and the budget being condensed so we can there's more money available to make better fights, competitive fights. But then you know your your ticket seller might be on the non TV part of the card, but you probably give him a win because. You know, you put him in a fight that he should win because you want him to keep winning because he's doing loads of tickets and he's building. And, and the thing is with selling tickets is a lot of these guys, when they're undefeated, all their mates and their family and their friends and all these people that are coming along, they're buying into the dream of where this kid could maybe go. And while he's undefeated, there's no ceiling on where their imagination can take them. Once he gets beaten, it's like the bubbles burst a bit and they might go from selling 600 tickets to 300 or maybe even 150 or whatever, you know, it, it can be that dramatic sometimes. Because like I say, the boy, the fact that he's undefeated, it's like, wow, the hype, there's no there's no ceiling on the hype. It could go anywhere, who knows? But once they've been beaten, it's like, it's like oh, well, we'll cap it at that. That's, that's his level. So for a ticket seller, you know, it is important that he keeps winning. 
Uh, with the TV, it's important that there's competitive 50-50 fights. So I think I think there's got to be a, yeah. a rethink on it all. Yeah, definitely. That's exactly what you said. It happened to me when I got beat. It went from 300 to 100, then it ended up at 50, then back up. It's When you start winning again, it's crazy. It's so important to keep winning. Everybody loves a winner, Matt. You know that. <laughs> but, and ironically, in the case of David Avenician, and we talked about some of the Philadelphia fighters years ago, sometimes when you lose, it actually makes you a better fighter because it improves you. But from a, from a marketing point of view, the best thing you can have going for you is that, oh. Yeah, it's unreal. It's mad because really, you look at some of these kids that get nominated for the Boxing Board of Control titles, like the English, the British and that. You know what I mean? You can have a kid who's like probably lost three or four, but a real hard, tough level. And then you've got a kid that's probably 10 and 0 that's been boxed nobodies. And he'll get the nod over the kid that's, you know what I mean, boxed at an higher level and had a couple of defeats. It's crazy because of that O. Oh, it means so much, which is, is wrong, really. But listen, you can either fight or you can't, Matt. You know that. You'll get found out sooner or later, no matter who you are. So um, that's the way the game is. Do, 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 you, do you see fighters sometimes, and I guess you must do, and, and you um, going well and everything's rolling along and they sell loads of tickets and maybe they've been signed by a major promoter, but you just kind of look at what they do in the ring and you just think to yourself, yeah, you're, you're an accident waiting to happen. You're, you're going to get put in deep and you won't be ready for it and that'll probably be you done because you do see it, don't you? You know what? You've just hit the nail on the head. I see it all the time. And the trouble with some of these kids is they start thinking they're better than what they are. But because I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt, I know how the game is. I just know sometimes it's a matter of time that, you know, as soon as you step them up, you, they're going to get beat. You know what I mean? There's an old world of difference between fighting on a non-TV show, picking your opponents, making your kid look good, than going under them bright lights on a TV show. I know that myself was a fighter, mate. It's a world of difference, you know what I mean? And some kids can either do it and some kids can't. You know what I mean? It affects some kids more than others under them bright lights on a TV show. Some really adapt to it and some just can't do it. And um, obviously, when you step them up to TV level, you lose control of them as a, as you know what I mean? Because you've got to give them, the big promoters, more of a, a shout on them and obviously they want they want them in more competitive fights so it's a lot harder on TV shows for sure and just just um just quickly before before um you have to nip off Ryland Charlton Ryland Charlton he's he's come to you hasn't he that must have been yeah. good you know that's that again you know he's he signed with Matt Troom he took his opportunity during during COVID um had a couple of good fights a good win and then the the, the fight against Florian Marku big ticket seller from what from what I from what I hear and and that's that that's a good kind of name fighter almost to to come your way yeah you know what the thing that amazed me with Ryland is when he come to me and obviously I've got issue with his manager Dan Naylor he was one of my fighters that I managed it was an away fighter he trained with Frank Greaves up in London um but he went on the road talented Dan was was a good amateur but just couldn't sell tickets so just went in the away corner and He's a, he's a manager himself now, and um, he asked me if I'd be interested in training Ryland. I said, well, yeah, definitely. I said, could I bring him up for a trial? Brought him over. Got him on the scales at the end of the session, 10 stone nine, right? you got to bear in mind he's been fighting at welterweight, 10-7. This is a kid that had done four sessions, four runs in six weeks. 
since the Florian Marco fight, I said, you should never, ever have been in that ring at welterweight. I said, I'm absolutely amazed. And what actually happened was, because he had that good win against Joe Laws at 10-4, it was sort of like forcing to take in that Florian Marco fight, I think, to keep his keep matchroom sweet. And obviously, Dan Zander was a bit tired. So... He's going to be boxing at lightweight, and uh, honestly, he's going to be boxing at lightweight. If he's only a stone over now, I mean, he actually trained this morning, 10 stone seven. So he's coming down now, he's stepping up a bit. He's still just travelling from Norwich a couple of times a week, which is three, and all, three hours to me. It's ridiculous. So when he gets a date, he'll be coming here to stay for six to eight weeks, living in Newark, a bit like David does. But yeah, he's going to be minimum 140, but hopefully we can do 135. And what a force he'll be if he can keep his strength and power because he can seriously punch that kid. You know what I mean? He leaves a bit of work with him with a lot of lot of things. He's not really been shown a lot in his career, but to get as far as he's got with just natural raw power and not really being shown a lot, then uh, I've got high hopes for him. Okay, great, great. Well, we'll let you go. You're doing the gym in five minutes. I don't know how close it is to your house, but I probably made you late. You're uh, all right. You'll have to wait. <laughs> but great to, great, great to chat. Uh, great to finally great, do mate. this. Uh, we'll do it again, definitely. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see you. We'll see you in person, I hope, before, before too long. Because yeah. they are relaxing things now. The, the PCR tests are going, I think, and it's moving yeah. to lateral flow. So, so that's a step in the right direction. Um, Everybody listening, thanks Thanks once again for joining us. Um, like I say, if you can get on to iTunes and give us a, a rate and a review and all that kind of thing, that, that'll be great. Uh, and head over to the YouTube channel as well if you get the chance. Uh, we'll catch you again soon. On the right, babe, not that Maggie, back in town. I said Jenny Diver, whoa, Suki Look out to Miss Lottie Lynn, and old Lucy Brown. Yes, that line falls on the right, babe, not that Maggie's back in Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.